What's up, everybody? Justin Nolte here with another episode of the Clovis Culture Podcast. In this episode, you're going to be sitting in on a live group coaching call inside my private members-only group called I Am Clovis. All of the members in this group get to participate in a weekly live group coaching call. In this particular episode, you're going to hear Megan and I communicating in real time with those members as they ask us questions on the live feed. For that reason, you're going to hear us using random people's names as they leave comments on the feed and we respond to them. Now, generally speaking, whatever comes from these live calls is usually for the members only. But in this case, I've decided to make an exception and share this live call with the rest of the world and with you. The reason for that is for the last several months, I have been deep, deep, deep down rabbit holes of research that have connected a whole lot of dots for me and put a lot of puzzle pieces together surrounding my entire health and wellness journey over the last 20 years. These have been massive realizations for me, in my personal opinion, and I'm working towards sharing these realizations with the rest of the world. And I plan on doing that even more in the future, but this live call was really a way of me introducing some of these new concepts to my members inside the I Am Clovis group who have been following Clovis for years and are always excited to learn about my most up-to-date research. They really love this call, and I think you will too. So settle in, grab your notebook, and enjoy this exclusive sneak peek into an I Am Clovis live group coaching call. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to this podcast and leave me a five-star review on your favorite podcast platform. I know that leaving a podcast review can be quite tricky, so I have made this as easy as possible for you. All you have to do is visit ratethispodcast.com slash Clovis. Again, ratethispodcast.com slash Clovis. I've also included this link in the show notes, so you can just click that link and it will show you a list of podcast platforms. Select your favorite podcast platform and you will see step-by-step on-screen instructions for exactly how to leave a podcast review. Each and every review counts. It really, really helps and it truly means the world to me. Thank you. All right, let's get on with the episode. Thanks so much for listening. Enjoy. What's up, everybody? It's Justin, and I'm live. Hello, hello. How are you? A couple cool questions that you guys dropped in the group, which is fun. Let me bring those up as well. And uh, most of what I want to talk about today, for anybody who's here live, is I want to talk about um, a lot of work that I've been untangling, a lot of things that I've been digging into um, for new courses that I want to make for Clovis, particularly one course on how to fix your metabolism, basically a total metabolism transformation that we're going to do. Um, and that has to do a lot with energy and some clarifications I want to make around energy. We're going to talk about, we can talk about hypothyroid, which I'm getting a lot of questions about and a lot of work with my one-on-one clients. Um, really, really cool stuff, really fascinating stuff on a cellular, cellular level. That's one book up there, uh, where this, this way, where, where is it? There, that one, that's a book called Healing's Voltage. That was really amazing. Um, and I've dug into all sorts of new books and new literature and new articles and new people that I've stumbled across that are doing really amazing work uh, in the field of cellular biology, which is kind of changing the way that I've looked at things, changing some things that I may have missed in the past, some puzzle pieces that I can put together um, for just tremendous benefit, revamping the entire metabolism, building the metabolism from the ground up, which is something that I've struggled with tremendously in the past because I've done all the things and done all the diets. 
and I've done all the biohacking and I'm really learning a lot about stress, digging back into stress. Um, if you guys remember way back when I did a, an AMA called Stress Sucks, and I started digging into the fact that things that are beneficial, acute stressors that are beneficial acutely, little tiny amounts of them, but really bad for you long term, are really problematic in our society today. Most people are walking around in a very stressed state, right? So I was talking about things like sauna. If you're in the sauna for a little while, it's beneficial. If you stay in the sauna too long, you will die. If you get in a cold plunge for a little while, it's pretty beneficial. And if you get into a cold plunge for too long and you stay there, you will die, <laughs> right? Fasting, great. If you don't eat for too long of a time, you would die. And that seems to be longer than we thought it was, given that I just went five days, no food, no water. Um, but even still, at some point, no food, no water, you are going to die. That's just the way that it goes. You need fuel. Um, the same thing with exercise, right? If you do a little bit of exercise here and there and you get some resistance, some um, tension on your muscles, and maybe a little bit of cardio every now and then. Um, and don't need a ton of cardio, nothing like that. Or maybe some all-out sprints once a week, something like that, if you can handle it. Most people can't handle sprints, right? But if you were to be an untrained person and go out and try to run 100 miles, you're probably going to die. <laughs> you know, you can literally die from those things. So this is the concept of acute stressors versus chronic stressors. And what we're finding is just that most of society is walking around in a state of chronic stress which is really problematic and changes the way that you need to think about getting healthy. Because if we think about chronic stress as being around all the time, then it's easy to kind of logically put the puzzle pieces together that maybe even more stress isn't going to make things better necessarily. So if you are super stressed at your job or your home life is super stressful and you're not getting much sleep and you are, um, let's say you are more than 30 pounds overweight or even 10 to 20 pounds overweight, just something that stresses you out or you have bad body image or negative self-talk or whatever it may be or too much screen time, all these things are stressors. So then you decide you wanna get healthy and you end up stacking stressors on top of that. You hear that fasting might be good because there's a bunch of studies saying fasting is good even though all those studies are done on men, but that's a whole different thing we'll talk about. Um, so you end up intermittent fasting and you decide that you wanna fast for 16 hours a day and then you decide that you wanna take on caloric restriction and, and count your calories and eat less food, which is also a stressor. So now you have intermittent fasting, stressor, then you have lower calorie diet, you have a stressor there. And then people want to add things like fasted workouts to that. They want to go do a boot camp or something, and they want to do a fasted workout boot camp. And then after that, they want to get in a sauna for post-workout recovery. And then later in the day, they might want to do a cold plunge. Or So you, you start to see how this amount of stress just cannot be beneficial for anyone. So when I started digging into stress and looking into how this was playing out in terms of creating hypothyroid and lowering metabolism in people, um, I came across a cool uh, Twitter thread that was actually showing some anthropological findings of hunter-gatherer tribes, at both, both past and present, so these indigenous tribes that still exist today. And they started just poking around these people's lives and studying them and found that the vast majority of their time was what the researchers labeled idle time. They just weren't doing much of anything. They were just kind of laying around, doing nothing, hanging out around a fire, talking to their friends and family, doing things like that. You okay? Yeah. Megan's over here stubborn her toes. You wanna you want do you wanna you wanna come sit in? You wanna say hi? Maybe maybe you can come back and we'll talk about periods or something. Okay. I can come sit if you want. You want to? Sure. Come on over. I mean you've heard all this. So, Megan has heard me rant about this stuff endlessly for the last couple of weeks as I've dug into this. So she'll she'll be back at some point, I'm sure. But so we're finding these hunter-gatherer tribes, the vast majority of their time is idle time or time spent doing nothing. 
So we have this misconception, and I think the misconception comes because we have food on every corner, and we think that we have to go to grocery stores to get our food, and we're disconnected from nature and our food sources and all these things, which gives us a really false understanding of how nature worked. So especially in past hunter-gatherer tribes, I would argue that for hunter-gatherer tribes now, it's probably harder than it used to be when there were millions and millions and millions of bison and stuff just roaming the prairie lands in America, let's say. But I mean, they used to kill buffalo by the hundreds. They'd run a stampede of them off a cliff and they'd waste a lot of food. Like there was an abundance of food. So they weren't starving to death. People think that like just because modern man doesn't know how to go out in nature and find food, well, hunter-gatherers must have had a real hard time finding food. No, they were experts at it. It's... Like those seals in Cabo. They're not a fish anymore. Exactly, yeah. There are these seals in Cabo that jump up on boats and people give them food. Uh, she and I both experienced this in Cabo. And it's a real problem because you now have these sea lions out there in Cabo that no longer know how to hunt. Mm -hmm. There is so much tourism and so many boats and so many things that they, they jump up on the boat, they get fed. They forgot how to hunt. For generations, they've been getting fed by humans, and they literally forgot how to hunt. Exactly. So then think about um, the same thing happened with monkeys in Thailand, right? So all these monkeys were used to getting fed by tourists. And in both of these locations, when something like COVID happens and a pandemic hits and all the people go away, these animals are freaking out. There's a video of hundreds of monkeys in Thailand. It's a really scary video, actually. Like, you would not want to be around that. But it's like there's like a banana peel or something in the road and like hundreds of monkeys rush in from 360 degrees around and just tackle each other, smashing each other, trying to get at this one banana peel because they forgot how to hunt. It's this kind of idea of learned helplessness, right? We can talk about that too. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, all these hunter-gatherer people, most of their time was leisure time, what they call idle time. It's estimated that anywhere from two to on the maximum end four hours of their day was spent working, which for them, they weren't going to jobs, right? Their work was just uh, procuring food and probably working on whatever shelters they had built or whatever. The rest of the time, they're like hanging out with their family. So even though we live in the most abundant time ever with food everywhere, we have this abundant society, but we have the most stressed out society that has ever existed. And it may not seem like it, but even checking your Instagram is a stressful thing to do. I, I heard something today, I haven't shared this with you, but um, they've done studies on the fact that like, watching a horror movie has the stressful equivalent on the body of like a moderate workout right so there are these things that are happening and we talk about the stress the the um chess players all the time like speed chess grandmasters they call the best chess players in the world they're called grandmasters these grandmasters playing chess speed chess will burn eight thousand calories in a day sitting in a chair doing nothing but playing chess they'll burn eight thousand calories a day over 20 percent of your daily caloric spend comes from your brain anyway so the big thing, there's, yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I think there's stressors that we don't even haven't been studied that we don't even know about. Like any, I swear to God, every time we go um, on a road trip or even when we get on a long flight, mm -hmm. like I get extraordinarily hungry. Yeah. Um, oh, for sure. Yeah. I, I always eat more. The, I know this uh, to be true for sure for flights. Another thing about flights is anytime you fly because of the altitude changes, you get very dehydrated. It's important to supplement electrolytes anytime you fly, especially if that flight is more than like two, three hours. Um, you're going to get very dehydrated because of those pressure changes. So we have all these tremendous stressors. And I'm laughing at Emily's comment here because I know Emily and she's saying all the things because that's that's really what happens is people are like, I'm going to get healthy or they read a few books like I did. Right. And, and when I say people, I mean me. Right. So I went from I went from bodybuilding and like five small meals a day of brown rice and tilapia bodybuilding, hired a personal trainer. I was doing, um, before that I was doing P90X workouts and insanity and like literally throwing up from working out so hard. 
And then I ended up hiring an actual Olympian to teach me how to Olympic lift because I needed to know that. That was important for me to know how to Olympic lift, right? And then I got into CrossFit and then I got into swinging kettlebells and then I got into jujitsu and all these things. And before I knew it, this was just uh, right before you and I met, I was powerlifting five days a week in my house during COVID, doing a 45 minute sauna session after the 45 minutes of powerlifting and then eating 1600 calories a day of pure carnivore with no carbohydrates. I had no energy in my body at all. And I tanked my testosterone. I fucked up my thyroid function. My metabolism like slowed to a halt. I started gaining body fat like while lifting five days a week and doing sauna every single day and going for fasted walks in the morning, like I was gaining body fat. So ultimately what this has led to through Clovis and seeing people roller coaster and go on the wagon, off the wagon, all these things, I just started digging in this more deeply. And a lot of this stuff is brand new, even though like some things I discovered today, are the, these studies go back much, much farther than right now. It's, it's, it is kind of old news, but it was covered up very carefully by the medical system and the food and nutrition industry and the way seed oils came into play and, and all that stuff is really, really staggering. I mean, it's, it's screwed up. Like seed oils initially came, um, farmers realized that they could feed pigs seed oils, like vegetable oils, canola oil, and things like that. And they could feed their pigs half the amount of food and make them the same amount of fat. So it literally like almost doubled their profit margins. They said, we can feed them half the food, make them drink canola oil every day, and they'll get twice as fat. And then that led the industries that were using these, the oils were like byproducts of the, of the industri industrial waste, essentially. They were like, oh, well, if we can feed it to pigs, we can feed it to humans. And now here we are, right? So the big thing that I wanted to share today Megan's, I don't even know how many times you've heard this, the, the Minnesota experiment, but you're going to hear it again. So um, the Minnesota starvation experiment is something that was done in, I want to say 1954 or 1945. I always mix the numbers up. Uh, I think it was the 1950s, but they did something called the Minnesota starvation experiment. This is very important for you all to hear. So they took men, average men at the time were about 150 pounds. And remember at that time, there's very little chronic disease, very little obesity, very little heart disease, very little, any of these things, right? So they take these average men, 150 pounds, and they put them on a severe starvation diet and they keep them on this severe starvation diet. And they, they had to have a buddy with them because they were trying to like sneak food and they were re getting really depressed. They started dealing with like mild psychosis. Some of them were complaining that they couldn't walk upstairs. They had to have their buddy open doors for them, like to get in and out of doors. Like, Hey, can you open this door for me? I'm too weak. Some of them started trying to eat bubble gum because they were just trying to find things that could get extra calories. So they're basically starving to death and having catastrophic impacts from this severe starvation diet. And what I explained to Megan yesterday is it took them like almost a year to recover of eating a tremendous amount of food to recover their metabolism and all their health and wellness from the things that had been damaged during this Minnesota starvation experiment. So I tell you all this purposefully in that order. So I can then tell you that their severe starvation diet was 1800 calories a day. They were feeding these men 1800 calories a day. And this was considered a severe starvation diet at the time, because at the time, an average 150 pound male. Now to give you an example, I weigh 178 pounds right now. This is someone 28 pounds lighter than me. And they were eating on average for maintenance, at least 3,300 calories a day. It's crazy. I, I don't know if I can remember the last time I freaking ate 3,300 calories. So I'm also like speaking to myself here with these things. 3,300 calories a day seems like a lot, but you have to remember that at the time there was no processed food environment. Those calories were coming from probably steak, maybe some chicken and pork. They were probably cooking in animal fat, like lard. 
They were probably eating whole eggs. They were definitely drinking milk at that time, getting delivered to their door in a glass bottle. Um, they were probably eating cheese, right? If there was bread, it didn't have any preservatives. It was bread that would be made either that day and go bad that day or go bad the next day, something like that. They, they were eating a whole food diet of 3,300 plus calories a day. And you're talking about like quite small, 150 pound man is not a big man, right? I'm five foot eight, 178 pounds. So I am of average height and for that time, uh, probably a little short of average height was probably five, six, five, seven, something like that then, and 150 pounds. And yeah, and just eating a tremendous number of calories, right? So I have women in particular coming to me regularly that are eating somewhere between 1,000 to 1,400 calories a day. Or anyone who's tried the crazy, the HCG diet where they feed you 500 calories a day. So what ends up happening is I see so many people dealing with the roller coaster up and down of weight loss, weight gain, and they're like, what the fuck, Justin? Like, can you please just fix me, right? And they want the thing to be fixed, but they're not realizing that no matter what they do, whether it's Clovis, keto, Whole30, paleo, vegan, carnivore, no matter what, they're all operating on the false belief that they need to have a massive caloric deficit. And you guys have seen this happen in Clovis day in and day out over and over again, people being like, Justin, I just can't eat this much food, man. You're asking me to eat 1600 calories a day. I just can't do it. It's too much. I feel like I'm stuffing my face. This can't be good for me. And I'm like, no, it is. It is good for you. This is where your thyroid function comes from. Like the, the number one thing that determines your thyroid function is how much fuel is coming into the system, right? So if you have a food shortage or you're doing extended fasting or something like that, they've done studies on this. And within eight hours of fasting, your thyroid production can start to go down. But I'm saying the combination of all of these stressors of trying to fast, trying to restrict your calories, trying to do fasted workouts, trying to do saunas, cold plunge, blah, blah, blah. While most of you have kids and you have a spouse and you have a mortgage and you have a job and you have Facebook that you got to check and all these things, right? We're all on Facebook right now. All of us are on social media every single day. None of us can try to pretend that we're the best at not being on social media and wearing that like a badge. We're all on social media and that is stressful as well. Constant comparison culture is very stressful. Seeing Will Smith slap another human in the fucking face is stressful. All of these things are stressful. Scary movies are stressful. Watching House of Cards is stressful. You see what I mean? Like there's, there are shows that give you particular feelings that are stressful. Even and excitement is stressful. Exactly, 100%. Heightened emotions are stressful. Yeah, so it, that's a really good point because it doesn't, I'm, I'm pointing out things that are negative and this is human bias, right? I'm trying to get you to fix your health so I'm tending to point to the stressful things that are bad. So I'm like, this sounds bad. Horror movie sounds bad. But yeah, like probably going to a comedy show. I went to a comedy show a couple weeks ago. Like going to a comedy show and like bursting into laughter and laughing my ass off is like a level of excitement that is also a stressor on the body. Yeah, any level of really heightened emotion. Like even when we go through periods of time where I'm exceptionally excited. Like if we are building a new business or when in the past when I built a new business and I'm just really rearing to go. Like I'm not afraid I'm not watching horror movies. I'm not even like exercising an exceptional amount, but I'm waking up really jazzed every day and I have to like make sure that I really slow down my nervous system from that. Even just like strictly speaking, like positive heightened emotions over and over and over can still like on a chronic basis still stress your body out. Yeah, you literally have to regulate. And that's the thing, like if any of you aren't not even not even just entrepreneurs, it's like um think about the last time you were going on a vacation that you were super excited about. You had an early morning flight and you couldn't sleep. You know, and you're like, fuck I only have six hours to sleep. I wish I could just fall asleep and wake up and then be well rested for this trip. But the kid before Christmas. Exactly. The, the little kid with Santa Claus, you know, that's crazy. And I, I never talk about Santa Claus in this podcast because I've done that before. And then people are like, my kids are around. So, <laughs> but yeah, I'm, I'm trying to just find a way to get people to reconcile this 
because it's a matter of all of your life, the programming that you've had has told you eat less, move more. And Megan loves to talk about this where we say like every single living creature ever, we were just watching this amazing show on TV called Animal on Netflix, which is really cool. It's like we're watching bears and wild dogs and big cats nature and shows. nature shows are the best, right? But every single animal on every nature show that you see is trying to move the least possible and expend the least amount of energy while consuming the most amount of energy possible. They want to gorge themselves stupid and put in very little effort to do that. So it is literally programmed inside of us to move less and eat more. And every single mainstream piece of mainstream advice, and even in the keto worlds and the biohacking worlds and all this, we still get the advice of eat less, move more, which means you're going to be day in and day out trying to work against your programming, the primal instinctual programming inside of you that keeps you alive. That's going to be a hell of a way to live your life. And this is where we see all these crazy symptoms coming up where most of the people that come to me are, are sleeping like shit and their hair is thinning and their teeth are sensitive and their nails are brittle and they're pale and they bruise easily and they have no libido and they're grumpy all the time and all these ridiculous things. And, and even things like, um, you know, super early menopause and all these kinds of things, like these are all related to thyroid function in terms of th increasing thyroid function is one of the fastest ways to increase progesterone in the body and increasing progesterone in the body directly decreases estrogen in the body. So as you guys know from Dr. Anthony Jay's work and the things that we've talked about and we teach this in a testosterone course now is people are living very estrogen dominant lives. And women were convinced along the lines that pumping themselves full of estrogen was a great thing to do, but estrogen dominance is a problem in males and females. So it's actually the lack of progesterone and Oddly enough, they can, they've literally done studies on this where they can like give women high levels of progesterone and they'll still be menstruating like deep into their sixties. It's pretty wild. So anyway, thyroid is responsible for virtually all of this. Anything that's happening on a metabolic level, creating energy is happening. Thanks to thyroid function. Your thyroid is like the master switch, the regulator of your entire metabolic system. So this is what I've been digging into lately. And I've been kind of my, with my nerd hat on doing a lot of research, but ultimately I just am trying to get the point across that starving yourself is never going to be the way to do this thing. And to reverse it takes time. So this is the tricky part is everybody wants rapid results. They're like, I want to try a new diet. I'm going to lose five pounds. And then you guys know how this goes, right? And then you plateau. Oh, let me try this diet harder. And then you still plateau. And then you start gaining a little weight back and you're like, oh no, I need a new diet. So you try a new diet and then you lose three pounds and you're like, oh, amazing. This, I got it. We got the new diet. This is great. And then you plateau again. And then you try to diet harder and then the weight starts to come back and you play this roller coaster game because ultimately what you have not done is allowed the metabolism to heal. And sometimes that's going to involve literally, it sounds bad, but literally force feeding yourself. It's really important to turn those metabolic systems back on. But until we can see the long term, instead of just the short term, we're sacrificing long term health for short term gains. But people often forget it doesn't take a week to get obese, right? So it's not going to take a week to reverse all of your metabolic problems. And that's what we really want to focus on is building those systems. So you have a core foundation of health and wellness to build that little pyramid on that ultimately self-actualization is what we're going for. And that's what we get into the personal development side of things and all this, but you need to have a baseline of health to do that. And you need to have enough energy to do that. That's the biggest thing. The cellular energy is what I've really been on a kick about lately is everyone seems to think that food is energy, but it's not true. Food is ultimately potential energy. So like this glass bottle, the glass in this bottle has a caloric content. 
all that calories are is the amount of energy produced by said thing when you burn it. But our bodies are not combustion engines. They don't work that way. So the example that I was talking to Megan about recently is like gasoline. If you drink 4,000 calories of gasoline, whatever that is, I mean, obviously that's not going to be good for you. It's going to have terrible consequences in your body, but you're not going to gain body fat from it and you're not going to build muscle from it. If you eat a bunch of paper, you go get the printer paper out of your paper and just start out of your printer and you just start eating it. You're not going to gain a bunch of body fat from eating that paper. And you're not going to gain a bunch of muscle from eating that paper, but those are calories. Calories are just potential energy. So when we say that people are, have excess body fat, what they're dealing with is a fuel problem. They have too much fuel an abundance of fuel. They're actually lacking energy like cellular energy on the back end. ATP is what your cells create. It's the energy that runs the whole human body. Everything that you do requires energy. So you need to have the proper micronutrients to take the fuel, the food and turn it into actual energy. So when people talk about calories and talk about energy balance, they're really just messing your brain up and confusing you because food is only potential energy. It's not energy until it is turned into energy. And the metabolic system has to do that. How you feeling over here? You just like the monologue? I'm just watching you in the class. Let me see what this comment says. I work with the public. It's so bad in this world. So sad. People have this brick wall that can hardly be touched. It's crazy. Literally believe all the things that don't work for them, but they won't change. Yeah. Um, what do you mean by brick wall, Tammy? Do you mean like, um, mentally like closed minded or physically, literally you're talking about like the way that the the body fat has worked in the system. Just wondering what you mean by that, but it is, it's, it's really, we've found ourselves in a really tricky spot and I agree with you. It is, it is quite sad. And you know, Megan and I get in conversations sometimes where we're like, we, we go down rabbit holes and we're like, Ooh, I almost can't think about that too much because I mean, some of this stuff is so terrible. I always say that word wrong, but nefarious. Some of these things are so nefarious where like, I don't know if you guys know this, but, um, in the 1930s, they, what they eventually did was that, oh, mentally, I see. Yeah, Tammy, for sure. It's like, they're just so closed-minded and closed off and it's really, really hard and tell them like, Hey, if you want to lose weight long-term, maybe you should eat way more calories. They'll think you're a crazy person. Right. Um, but that's all because of propaganda. So in the 1930s, they, there were women that were working in factories and they literally wanted more women to work in factories and they wanted them to not take time off. This is why the rubber nipple for bottles was invented. They invented the rubber nipple for these bottles and then they made synthetic baby formula so that women didn't have to be away from their work for things like breastfeeding. And they went on a full blown marketing rampage campaign and they convinced doctors that this synthetic formula was better than mother's milk. And doctors started telling women that breast milk was dangerous for their babies. And the crazy thing is, is all of the mill workers and the, the factory workers and stuff, these were some of the poorest neighborhoods. So these doctors were telling women in neighborhoods where the water wasn't even safe to drink, to use store-bought formula with tap water to feed to their baby through this rubber nipple. And they literally invented it so that they could put women to work longer so they didn't have to feed their kids and breastfeed them. So you have to be willing to question these things and see where they come from. The same thing with seed oils. Seed oils were industrial waste, spillage from machinery. And they started feeding it to pigs and realized it could fatten them up. So started feeding it to humans. It sounds like a great idea, right? The same way that the food pyramid and eating 11 servings of whole grains, this was left over from food shortages in world war one. When we really thought people were going to run out of food, 
So we started monocropping and making all this wheat in the cheapest crops that we could find so people wouldn't starve to death. And we did such a good job of that that we ended up with a surplus of wheat and corn and convinced people that they needed to eat a bunch of wheat. So we're in this situation right now where people's belief systems and their identity is built around this thing. And it's quite strange because like Tammy's saying is like, it's built around this thing that has not worked for them. Not one time. <laughs> it's like, if you come to me and you're 45 and you've been dieting your whole life and you're still overweight, it hasn't worked for you one single time, <laughs> right? But it's the, the brains can get stuck. And that's, this is where we start working on um, behavioral patterns and untangling some of those, which is a lot of the work I've ended up doing in my coaching. I never intended for my coaching you know, I guess my, my credential, my main credential is I am a nutritional therapist, but I never intended for my coaching to become personal development coaching or therapy. That was never my intention. I just wanted to tell you guys how the human body worked and then watch you get healthy. But what I realized is that behavioral patterns and societal programming prevent that from happening. So we have to do a bunch of deep work and dig into the root causes of all these beliefs that people are holding and start to untangle those so they can get some new beliefs and I was explaining this to one client today. It's like, listen, you eventually reach a point where you start to assess all of the people around you in your life and family members and friends and social circles and your job and everything. You start to look around and you're like, wait a minute, I'm around a lot of people that seem really, really cool with poisoning themselves. And if I bring new information up to them, now nah, they shoot it down or they put me down or they say, that's crazy. Or this Justin guy's a quack or that doctor that you're listening to is a quack. But the information is overwhelming at this point. So there's a lot of people willing to, to bury their heads in the sand, which is why it's very scary if you work with someone like me and we start doing some personal development practices and you start to feel really confident in yourself and say, man, I, I love myself. I love myself to the point where I'm not going to poison myself anymore. And I know the truth about these toxic products and I refuse to put them in my body. And I don't care what anybody else thinks about that. And then you are willing to deal with the aftermath of that's going to make other people uncomfortable, you know? So we're trying to just tear apart these behavioral patterns and you are way more of an expert at that than I am. So the, the psychological side of this is like very, very deep. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of components to it, right? But ultimately it's like, um, the rational conscious brain really wants to believe whatever the subconscious holds on to most dearly. Right. So just whatever your subconscious is most deeply attached to. And a lot of this stuff comes from, um, childhood, um, scarcity or trauma or things your parents did or didn't approve of, which is why a lot of people's like eating disorder, if you really wrap it back, comes to the first time for women in particular, the first time they saw their mother judge their own body, mm -hmm. um, not the person's body, not the child's body, but the mother judge the mother's body. Yes. Um, and so you, you walk this back, it almost all comes from sort of subconscious childhood stuff where we as children are very vulnerable and we depend on our parents to take care of us and if they don't we die and so our parents approval is extraordinarily important to us not just because we want approval but because it literally our lives depend on it and so that ends up dialing in your subconscious at a really really important level and some of that is really very important throughout life because some of it's like the reason we know how to behave in our society and get along and understand mm -hmm. people who grew up in the same culture as us and, and we can get along with them and work together and some of it ends up becoming things like um, you know, deep, deep body shame that's hard to even see because it's, it's so deeply in there. And so what the, what the conscious mind will do, and I think you've talked about this on a lot of Clovis things before and, um, referred to as the, the press secretary, we call it. And, um, the prefrontal cortex sort of conscious mind, the way that it press secretaries for the subconscious mind is, is essentially like you will believe in your mind that like, oh, I, I, 
um, this data seems more correct to me than this data, but the truth is that the data that you prefer, even if it has you know suspicious backing or was funded by a um, you know a, a soybean lobby or something, is is something that um, that more neatly ties up the data that your subconscious prefers because for whatever reason you um, you know you really really want to eat tofu and want to believe that that's better for you than something that our ancestors have been eating for you know millennia. So. There's, there's a lot to unpack there. Yeah, but so to you, it feels like that one feels more true, yeah. but it is still subjective. Yeah, I mean, I, I think too, ultimately, like, um, we were having a conversation with some of our friends about this recently. I really think that, like, there's there's sort of two spots for thinness or, or leanness or um, healthy-looking body, let's say, versus, like, uh, literal cellular health, physical health. Um, and those, only one of those can be on your number one spot priority-wise, right? And maybe it's neither of those, but in terms of like which one has higher priority over each other, I think the socially accepted answer is that I want to be healthy. Um, the true answer that comes from a very long period of social conditioning that you should look like X and you are superior if you look like X ultimately forces in a lot of people's subconscious minds, forces like I want to be skinny on top or that's more yeah. of a word that uh, women tend to use more sometimes for men it's i want to be lean or i want to have abs but whatever whatever your version of that is um and so long as i want to be skinny or i want to be smaller i want to be lean is more important to you than i want to be healthy being healthy becomes incredibly difficult it's not that those things can't happen in tandem um, and they certainly should like being healthy is a definitely a, a strong place from which you can have an extraordinarily healthy body a really lean a really muscular body but it's it's virtually impossible to get healthy from a perspective where I'm unhealthy today and my top priority is getting skinny. Those mm -hmm. two things don't don't really drive a lot of cellular health because there's there's so much misinformation that will guide you in the wrong direction. There's so much desire for a quick fix, especially in a society that really prefers like faster, better, quicker. Um, and the desire for a quick fix, frankly, is is one of the most damning things. Like we even just recently we talked to a couple of our friends about metabolic function and we've had people that have kind of taken a little blip of our conversation and gone home and said, I'm gonna start eating another thousand calories yeah. today. <laughs> yeah. And and then they, they call Justin and they're like, uh, I've been eating another thousand calories for the last seven days. Um from random foods and uh, my metabolism doesn't seem to be getting faster because I think I'm gaining weight. And he's like, uh, wait, wait, did you did you take that offhanded comment that I said and, and automatically just add an extraordinarily large number of calories out of totally random foods that are not necessarily the right foods in the right order in the right way um, to get there? Like your metabolism is not going to turn into a bonfire inside of seven days just by adding a thousand calories willy nilly of whatever yeah. you're already eating. Like that's not how it works. Yeah, and the thing to remember is when you're in that energy deficit state, not a food deficit, remember, not a caloric deficit. When you're in an energy deficit, your cells don't have enough energy. What is happening there is they desperately want energy. So if you hear this that I'm saying tonight and you say, I'm gonna go double my caloric intake when you've had a sleepy metabolism, basically in hibernation mode, which by the way, some of the things that happen to a slow metabolism cellularly are the same things that bears metabolisms do when they wanna lay under a tree for three months. <laughs> so when you decide, okay, Justin says I'm gonna eat more calories and you go eat a thousand calories extra per day, the cells go, hell yeah. <laughs> and they go, let's make sure that we never let this lack of fuel happen again, this lack of energy happen again and they store every bit of it. They're like, let's just store this. So ultimately what I'm talking about here is a concept called reverse dieting. And that is basically looking at what your basal metabolic rate is and doing that with a test in a lab is the best way to do this. 
finding what your RMR is, finding what your daily caloric intake is, which kind of tells us what it has probably been in the recent past 90 days or whatever. And then we have to start moving the opposite direction of increasing your caloric intake. And that might look like 175 calories a day for a week. And then maybe adding an additional 100 calories on top of that for another week or for two weeks. And then maybe at the end of four, six, maybe eight weeks, we have you to a place where you're eating an appropriate amount of calories for a human your size. And we have to stay there to let your metabolism relearn that it can function at a healthy place. And then, yes, occasionally, if you decide you want to cut some body fat, we can use a caloric deficit to make that happen and do that in a really powerful way, right? And honestly, the best way to do that would be to increase, keep your caloric intake increasing and just work on a little bit of a low-level daily activity like aerobic threshold training or something like that to burn the stored body fat. So I want to touch on um, Emily's comment here. Is it true that every cell in the body is turned over every 2,000 days? So again, I'm terrible at math, but I will tell you that every seven years you are a new human completely, right? So the person sitting at your computer right now watching this did not exist on cellular level seven years ago. Um, and this is actually different for different parts of the body. I did a, a, a I don't know if I ever made a reel about this. Maybe I did, but um, is I- an average? Because there are some cells that are definitely the same. Oh yeah, I mean, it's, I think seven years is the average, but so these things get tossed around, right? It's like, oh, every seven years you're a new human. So to give you an example, the liver is one example where your liver, completely replaces itself every eight weeks. And then I think um, your pancreas is another that I think is something like 16 weeks or something. So the different tissues in the body are doing this at a different rate. The cellular turnover happens at a different rate. And I think that the liver's job is so important to flush toxins, to filter toxins out of your system. I think it just requires more cellular turnover. Um, so it's more fair to say seven days is probably some kind of average. But it is fair to say that at some point, all of the cells in your entire body become new cells. There is cellular turnover for everything in your body. The liver appears to be, I think it's the fastest organ where the liver that you have sitting in your body right now was not there eight weeks ago. Again, on average, but yeah, these are kind of these things that get tossed around, but it's true. Your body is constantly replacing, repairing, and creating new cells. And uh, everyone wants a magic pill. Yeah, and the, the thing is, it's this is where like the empathy part of this kicks in too, because it's no wonder everyone wants a magic pill, right? It's like when somebody has been suffering for one, two, three, four, five decades, and every doctor tells them eat less, move more. And every trainer says, well, you need more willpower. You need more discipline. It's like, they're so frustrated and they're so exhausted. And I will say this right now, if your metabolism is not functioning properly, it is very hard to be optimistic. It really is. I mean, this impacts your mental health in a significant way. Depression and anxiety in, in the Minnesota starvation experiment, they talk about symptoms of psychosis from eating 1800 calories a day. So and it's crazy. And then I'll have women that come to me that are eating a thousand calories a day and they have endometriosis and they have all these things because their hormones are all out of whack. And it's like, yeah, no shit. They want a magic pill. That's a miserable state to live in. It's fucking terrible. The medical gaslighting that happens with people, the way that, the way that things that are so very out of whack are so common today that they're considered normal. And the way that, I mean, I personally, this has happened to me. I know this has happened to a ton of people. Like I have had some very qualified, like good hearted doctors tell me that there was nothing wrong with me when mm -hmm. there was, were severe things wrong with me. And in some cases they didn't even test me for things. In some cases they were like, you look fine. And in some cases, you know, they did tests and they were like, oh, we didn't immediately find anything. Like, it seems like you're probably okay. Like, I wouldn't worry about it. This is a normal, this is a normal thing. And then come to find out, you know, it's not normal. I I've even, you know, I had a pharmacist once tell me my anaphylactic shock 
symptoms were normal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I mean, I'm laughing at that, but that's so. Yeah, I mean, literally, you could have died. Literally, yeah. I could have died, and it's it's. I mean, it's extraordinarily disheartening to think about the amount of medical gaslighting that has happened. Yeah. Fuck. It's it's just you know, and I, and I know that like I don't consider the majority of this to be malicious. I think people, I think there's a a lot of lobbying that goes into um, what's provided as training in textbooks for our medical systems and our medical professionals. I think there's a lot of people who are are too busy and and too stressed out in life to learn significantly more than what they absolutely have to to do their job, which is just like the nature of the speed of our society. Like, I don't, I don't lay this at the feet of, of doctors necessarily. I think mm -hmm. a lot of people are genuinely trying to do their best. I just, I, I think that the system as a whole is, is causing a lot of, a lot of gaslighting and telling a lot of people that their common symptoms are just a normal sign of aging. I think a lot of people are told that like being cold, being tired, mm -hmm. being, uh, you know, waking up tired, not getting good sleep, not being able to go to sleep, like all these things that are absolutely just not regular parts of normal life, like thinning hair and nails and stuff. Like, I, I don't know how many times I've heard people say like, oh, my doctor told me that just like being kind of sleepy and cold is just a regular sign of aging. And I'm 35 now. I'm like, you're 35? Are we just, we're, you're, you're cold all the time and you can't sleep well and you're, I mean, you're halfway dead. You might as well just give up now. Like that's why there's mm -hmm. so many people feeling like a, a bit resigned and just like a little yeah. hopeless about the thing because the amount that, that even, even our medical experts will tell us that like feeling mediocre at best is just like really regular for you. If you're basically out of college age is just, whew. Yeah. It's crazy. And so I know there were a couple of questions here too, and they're, they're all linking back to this, right? So it's, it's just crazy the way things work where I start, talk, start talking about this, it gets people's wheels spinning and they start to ask questions like this. So this, um, this first one we have says, if every other metric is optimal or at least trending in that direction, would hypothyroid explain why I can get hours of deep sleep and still feel exhausted? That's what I was doing for a really long time. Yeah. How long were you sleeping? Easily 10 hours a day. And I was still I was still falling asleep fast. I was still, I could take a nap. So like on an average day, I would say when I, when I was hypothyroid, um, before I resolved my thyroid issues, I was sleeping eight, nine hours a day at night. And then I could easily sleep for another 90 minutes to sometimes three hours a day. So sometimes I was sleeping like 11 hours in a day, especially if I did a workout that day, I would, yeah. I would easily sleep 10 well and that's the thing so she was taking in plenty of calories because she was doing bodybuilding type yeah, stuff I've at the always time. been a high calorie eater yeah so she's eating eating a lot of calories she's exercising almost every day or going through a, a heavy bodybuilding protocol she's running a business doing all the things that she's doing and still sleeping 11 hours a day and not feeling rested and what your thyroid got tested as like non-functioning right I don't know what it was at that time because yeah. it was years later that I got it tested but yeah, you know, yeah when I when I did finally get it tested my um my T3 and T4 were so low, they were like, they couldn't be registered on, yeah. on the test. The hardest thing about this too, like what's really frustrating for me is I have since learned since digging into all this, that you can test perfectly normal. And this is where we get into blood reference ranges being totally fucked because they're taking it from an average sick population. Right? So I wish I knew what my TSH had been, but this was the time that I had a doctor who looked at me and was like, you look fine. You're cause she's lean. You're lean, so you can't have anything wrong with you because we only that's the only thing we measure health on, right? If you if you have abs, you must be healthy, yeah. right? But ultimately, you can have all of your tests come back, literally all of it. And I get people to do extensive thyroid panels. Most doctors will test just your TSH, maybe your total T4, and they'll tell you that you're normal, which 
by the way, it's impossible to make a normal diagnosis with just that. And that's the standard of care for medicine. And if they don't do it that way, they will lose their medical license. So the thing that they are legally required to do cannot diagnose hyper or hypothyroid. It can't, and they're legally required to do it. So Amber's question here, or her comment of when you challenge medical doctors, they look at you like you're dumb. Yeah, 100%. But ultimately, even if you get an advanced thyroid panel, if you work with me, you'd get an advanced thyroid panel. And that can come back as totally normal on every single measure. And you can still be exhibiting symptoms of hypothyroid and a sleepy sort of um, hibernating metabolism. And there are other tips and tricks that we can do for that. And this, we're gonna build out this course that teaches you exactly how to do this, tracking basal body temperature, tracking your pulse every day, all this kind of stuff, because it's really important to understand this stuff. Yeah, Dan, you're right. But I yeah. mean, the amount of times, I know that this is, this is different for every single person. And I know that um, there is a significant amount of like judgment that is made from medical professionals on people based on the way they look. And it happens depending on like how you look, you'll get a variety of different flavors of it. But I've had a number of different times in my life, I've had something like very severely wrong with me from an endocrine system perspective. And I've had mm -hmm. doctors look at me and say like, you seem fine. I don't know. Yeah. I, I wouldn't think that you're, you have any problems. Not, didn't ask any symptoms, didn't run any blood work. And these were, these were like highly paid in some cases, private doctors. And I would just say also Amber and for everyone else, just remember that. And I didn't know, I didn't think like this for a really long time. Remember that like your doctor is very much like a professional hired by you to do a job. And so if you find yep. someone who isn't listening to you or who's looking at you like you're dumb, like even my doctors who have been hesitant to run the tests that I want, um, they still will hear me out. And like in the past when I've had doctors who wouldn't listen to me or, or thought I was crazy or treated me like I was crazy, um, I, I eventually did leave. I wish I had done it sooner. And now today mm -hmm. I will say like, I never want any of our conversations because we've been so mistreated by the medical community. And I know a lot of people have, and I, we know a lot of people that we care about who have. I never want to end up in an anti-doctor state because I think a great doctor is, is a really phenomenal resource. And we have many great doctors. Yes, um, that we, we work love with. working with MDs. So it's important to remember that like a doctor is literally doing, you're paying someone to do a job for you. And if you don't like the job they're doing, like find someone else because yeah. it is it is worth your health and your safety and your sanity to find someone who will treat you like you're not a crazy person. Yeah, exactly. And Amber, I know that we've been through a lot of messages and stuff recently and um, it's very hard and, and Amber knows this, that I'm very careful with the way I speak in private messages as well, because if something like a, a cancer diagnosis happens, it's terrifying and doctors will convince you that if you are not doing exactly what they tell you to do that you're going to die an immediate death or whatever it's like like she said like the amount of gaslighting that happens and the amount of um i don't know elitism that happens among doctors i mean the cancer the entire cancer industry in the u.s is a fucking racket and it's i truly believe it is emotional abuse it is physical abuse it is psychological abuse i mean it's insane the mechanisms of cancer are deeply understood and in very very serious way they are deeply understood and seemingly only america's medical system are the ones that pretend we don't understand how it works and we can't treat it other than this very these very painful things that we do that destroy your health and make you miserable and all this stuff. But if you suggest anything else that is happening in other countries all around the world with fantastic results, with clinical studies behind them, the mainstream Western doctors will tell you that you're a crazy person and that you're going to kill yourself by doing them. So it's really, it's a really hard spot to be in. I totally understand. Um, 
it's scary. It is scary. And, but they ultimately do work for you. That's the thing. This is a work for hire person. It's like me at my, um, at the piano bar, right? It's like, you can request that I play a song and I can play that song for you. Or I can say, no, I'm not going to play any of the songs that you want me to play. And you can walk out of that gig and not listen to me play piano anymore. Cause like, yeah, do you want to hear the piano played? Yes. But you want to hear the songs you want to hear. So that's it. Right. Yeah. PubMed is my friend. That's great. Exactly. That's take back your health, right? Like we, we are so used to outsourcing our health is the other thing. And that's like, you know, Megan will attest to this. I am a big fan of the feminine and I am a big fan of the divine feminine. And I think you're all little goddess queens running around the world manifesting and it's beautiful. And most of you were told to outsource your health from a very young age. Oh, you're 12 years old and you're having migraines. Here's some fucking birth control and we're going to pump you full of estrogen and your periods aren't even going to start and you're going to have a weird teenage years and then it's going to follow you into adulthood and you're going to have all these problems, right? It's insane. It is the most abusive thing ever and it pisses me off and it's just this 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 outsourcing of health that we have so ultimately what amber's saying here is like pubmed is my friend is like don't be afraid yeah it's intimidating the first time you you read a pubmed study you're going to be a little confused you know but like get on pubmed and search for something search for alternative cancer treatments or whatever you want to search for and just find start looking at things i didn't know how to read pubmed you know 12 years ago or whatever. Also, a decent doctor should be open to discussing a PubMed study with you. Yes. And if you don't totally understand it, that's okay. You should be able to take that to any sort of consultative doctor and have them hear you out and help have them kind of explain the findings to you. And even if you're really just reading the abstract and the conclusion, you can get a lot that's like relatively within layman's terms. Mm -hmm. um, there's a particular way that like medical studies publish um, and, and use uh, certain acronyms and the way that they produce those acronyms and the way they explain them. So sometimes you have to run back within the study and figure out what acronym they were talking about and, and yeah. how they're creating acronyms. And those are, um, in some cases, those are specific to the study. Um, but there's a, there's a pretty sharp, like relatively low learning curve when it comes to being able to read the synopsis of the study. Mm -hmm. um, and oftentimes you don't really, for your own purposes, especially if you're taking it to your doctor to like discuss alternative things like you don't necessarily need to read the whole thing mm -hmm. yeah and what she's saying too like a, an easy example of this so it doesn't sound intimidating is like there may be a study where one of the groups was low carb high fat and going through the rest of the study it may say l lchf right low carb high fat they just use these little acronyms and, and by the time you get if you just scroll down to the summary it may say lcfh group blah 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 and you have to scroll up further at the beginning of the intro of the study to figure out like what exactly that acronym means but mm -hmm. um but it's relatively easy to get in the pattern of reading through those and they're not they're not nearly as terrible if you're not really digging into like the meat of them and and oftentimes like you know in some cases until i'm really getting into the details like i don't sometimes even care about what like the detailed chart of every single thing is or yeah. the, you know, the yeah, exactly. of whatever. We're looking for findings, right? And uh, Lisa, this is another one too. Lisa's saying, finally getting around to hormone help. I'm 61, feeling more energized, but for years was afraid of it because of all the negative news around it. Exactly. This is where mainstream medicine and mainstream media both kind of coincide. So I actually had a really long call one day with Dr. Anthony Jay about this, who worked at the Mayo Clinic for many years. You guys know he's a biochemist, PhD biochemist, and he's been on the podcast many times. And he said, hormones are carefully, carefully, carefully controlled. Where like, you can get cyanide by the pound to like literally kill a hundred humans with. And yet when you, for clinical studies, and when they want to study testosterone, they have to go through, like jump through all these hoops. It's in a safe. They have to like sign out to get testosterone. The reason for that is hormones are a very, very cheap, unpatentable way to cure a ton of chronic diseases. So the negative news that comes out about hormones is to basically 
encourage you to not use them, right? Because like something like testosterone, testosterone can get men off of SSRI medications. It can get them off of high blood pressure medication. It can get them off of statin drugs. It can get them off of metformin, all these things, right? So there's all these drugs that testosterone has a really positive impact on these chronic conditions that testosterone has a, either a positive impact on or reverses altogether. And all those other drugs, resuvastatin or whatever it is, are patented drugs that are crazy expensive that they want people to keep buying. It's the same reason why we don't cure diabetes with lifestyles because Americans spend $324 billion a year on treatments for diabetes with a medical system that tells you it's irreversible and you just need these treatments for the rest of your life. Right? So it's the same thing with hormones. They will try to convince you that hormones are going to be really bad for you. I'm a huge fan of hormone replacement therapy. And that's the other thing is people will come to me and say, Hey, I'm thinking about trying hormones, but I'm really scared. I think it messes you up, blah, 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 blah. And this is what Megan is trying to say is people think that we're anti-medicine or anti-doctors or anti-drugs. Like not at all. There are, there are plenty of pharmaceuticals that are super safe. Aspirin, aspirin is crazy safe. Right? You can take a baby aspirin every day and it's actually really good for a whole bunch of things in the body. And it's a pharmaceutical drug, right? So hormone replacement therapy, I feel the same way, but people come to me expecting me to say, no, don't do that. You have to do it naturally. If you're 61 and you've been having health issues and have been having health issues for decades, and I know that hormone replacement therapy is super safe and super effective and is going to make you feel good, I'm all for it. Go do that for sure. These are the beauties of modern medicine and technology. Like science is amazing. It's just been misused and abused for really bad reasons, but it is still incredible and we take advantage of it. Sometimes even if you're not in that state, from a philosophical perspective, that. I... Wow, oh, and insurance yeah. won't cover it, yeah, of course. Exactly. Wow, that says all you need to know right there. <laughs> Philosophically, I think I'm generally in favor of people, I mean, whatever, I don't, I don't do your job and I, people can do whatever they want, but from yeah. my perspective, I, I like the idea of using it to feel better first, um, even if you're not in that situation and your intent is to eventually come off of it, I think there's a lot of benefit to getting yourself to the point where you can feel what it feels like to be optimized from a hormone perspective, right? Like if you can get to the point where you can feel what it feels like to feel better, like I, I don't know that I would have gone without like taking the thyroid medication that I took, I don't know that I would have gone out of my way to improve my thyroid function from a natural lens mm -hmm. and it doesn't take a whole lot right um but even still like there's still some benefit to feeling it first and then when i was still on it i was on it for a little bit went off of it and i was like oh this fucking sucks and then i went back on it again mm -hmm. before i found a more a more natural remedy and at this point no one had discussed a natural remedy for me i didn't even know that existed but but it really was it, it is nice in many cases to be able to get to the point where you can feel what it feels like to feel really excellent because that's one of the other things it's hard for people because there is no magic pill to feeling excellent and getting healthy immediately, sometimes that little kick in the butt is really nice just, just for like the belief and the encouragement yeah. that it can happen and it can feel better. And in some cases, like in some cases that's not super possible until you are in the, in the place where you're really in tune with your body and you have been for a long period of time. Like mm -hmm. now we'll do something where like you'll make me the first time you made me smoothie with raw liver in it. Um, I don't know if you guys know about this. We, we drink these raw liver smoothies. Raw liver smoothies. Yeah. Um, and the first time you made me that, the next day I felt incredible. And the day after that, when I had, had it two days in a row, I felt even better. But had I not gotten to the point first where I had really, really gotten in tune with my body and being capable of intuitive eating because I eat almost exclusively whole foods and, and I've been on this, you know, a number of, of different like 
health journeys both with you and, and before you of getting to this place. Like were it not for that, I don't know that I could have felt the difference and really appreciated yeah. the difference that it made. So because getting healthy is this kind of iterative step by step thing that accumulates over time, sometimes it really is nice to like feel Fuck yeah. instant like wow, holy it's the shit. Best. Okay. It's the closest thing you have to a magic pill. You know, unless it's it's like meditation, right? Like learning meditation sucks. But once you become like an advanced meditator, if you could get someone on day one to feel the experience of an advanced meditation, they'd be like, wow, I'm gonna stick with this because that's awesome, you know? And it's kind of that, right? It's like like something yeah. like T3, like a, a, a T3 thyroid hormone, like to let you feel what a faster metabolism feels like and what better cognition feels like and better energy and better sleep and better sex and better libido. It's like, whoa, this is crazy, right? And then it will motivate you to make the lifestyle changes. I'm not saying that you should like, you know, eat McDonald's every day and take a bunch of hormones to, to feel a certain way. It's not gonna go that way, right? But if you wanna go Clovis and learn about the things and lifestyle changes, and then you're like, wow, I feel awesome. So while you're taking this HRT, hormone replacement therapy, talk about the acronyms. Um, so if you're doing HRT and then also doing the lifestyle changes that make those positive changes happen naturally, well then you can possibly taper yourself off that hormone eventually and get the same benefits or you can stay on it if you want to, if it's perfectly safe. Something like T3 is near impossible to overdose on. Um, I like what Lisa just said here. She said, my doctor said my levels are normal, but why do I want to feel 61? I like her. Yeah, exactly. It'd be like, I want to feel 30. I don't want to feel 61. I want to feel 30. And especially you don't want to feel like a modern average 61 year old. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Statistics today. I don't know if you've quoted the part of our uh, testosterone course and, and company that we built is based a good bit around some some recent statistics that have come out in the last couple of years about um, modern testosterone levels. So just to give you an idea, um, one thing that we quote a good bit in that course is that the average testosterone levels today of a 22-year-old man right now are about the same as an average 67-year-old in the year 2000. That's 22 years ago. 22 years ago, guys. And I know it blows my mind a little bit that the year 2000 was 22 years ago. Yeah, it's wild. But still, okay, a 22-year-old today has the same testosterone as a 67-year-old in the year 2000. That's bananas. So the amount that our hormones are incrementally getting worse, like you can't even fairly call that incrementally, drastically getting worse yeah. over the years. Like the average, uh, you know, we talk about bell curves a lot. Like the average is just the middle of the bell curve. So wherever the population is, for me, if I'm if I'm testing my T3 and I'm like right in the middle of of where average is for the population of 32 year old women in the U.S., I'm like, ooh, I'm not. You don't want to be I'm that. Not doing too great. There are very few markers on on my blood work that I feel good about if they're sitting in the average pocket. Yeah, I want to be in the top one percent of the top one percent always. That's where I want to live. Um, Deanna, I think what you're talking about with aspirin is there are different versions of aspirin in different brands, and some of them have a pretty gnarly synthetic coating around them, um, but it is possible to just get pure aspirin. I think Bayer has multiple different versions of this, like the baby aspirin is pretty clean. Um, I think their normal aspirin is a 325 milligram dose. There are some aspirins that have these like synthetic coatings around them, and I'm sure some brands are better than others. And I'm sure there's got to be a website somewhere where someone's done a deep dive on this and knows how to just get pure aspirin. Um, so just do a little poking around. I, I wouldn't say that it is very bad, right? Again, this is another thing that we come across, right? Like a medication like aspirin being described as very bad when nobody is like worried about people drinking Red Bulls and drinking and eating Big Macs. You know, so it's like some of these things are really, if you have the lifestyle stuff down, it's like the obsession over these little details is not that big of a deal. Like people if there's- Tylenol after they're drinking alcohol. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly, or right? <laughs> yeah, let me take some Tylenol right after I got hammered the night before and just, just destroy my liver. Yeah. Really OG Crazy. and find a willow tree somewhere. Exactly. So the only other thing I want to cover here is there is one uh, comment slash question from Lindsay that says, when you get sick, why do you lose energy and it doesn't come back when you are well? So first things first, let's just say that this is an experience you're talking about, like an experience that you may have had getting sick and then feeling like you have gotten well and now the energy has not come back. But ultimately, if the energy has not come back, you are not well, right? So we need to look at it that way. Is Again, like we talked about here, is a lot of people are living with an energy deficit because their cells are not producing enough energy. Even if there's plenty of fuel coming in, and maybe too much fuel for some people, too much bad fuel that can't be converted to energy, they end up in an energy deficit. So we also live in this fast-paced, stressful society where someone says like, okay, I got sick and I was down for the count. There was like 24 hours where I couldn't get out of bed. I was achy. I felt tired. And then I took like some, you know, NyQuil or something. And the next day, like I went to work and by day four, I was starting to feel a little bit better, but I went to work every day. And then by day six, I was like almost back to my normal self. So I went back to the gym and then I started doing it. And all of a sudden it's just like, we are, we do not give our bodies time to recover in our modern society. We really, and it's really hard for me too. Anytime I'm sick, I'm like, I, which happens very rarely. We were sick that one time in Austin over New Year's and I was like, Phew. and I just wanted to get back to the gym. I could feel myself wanting to get back to the gym. I'm very guilty of this. So I believe this. I had a gym coach that was a science teacher in my high school who would say like, at the end of the flu, you just got to run out the rest. You got to yeah. run every day, get up and run every morning until you run it out. <laughs> yeah. Ultimately, what you need to do when you're sick is like not leave your bed and drink a gallon of bone broth a day with plenty of salt added to it and have beef liver smoothies and eat, literally drink like orange juice, get like plenty of like glucose in your cell. You need energy. Your body, your cells need energy to fight these things off, right? So there's a lot of things that normally seem blasphemous or too much sugar or you're taking in too many calories. You're laying in bed doing nothing and you're taking in 3,000 calories a day or eating foods you wouldn't normally eat, eating more fruit or more honey or whatever because you're just nourishing your body like crazy. If you're dealing with like some kind of virus or something like that, you need to nourish your body like crazy. Get it plenty of protein, plenty of fat, plenty of carbohydrates, plenty of healthy foods, plenty of micronutrients, and give it the raw materials it needs to repair and rebuild the cells. So all it means is if you lost a bunch of energy because you got sick and now later you're saying, well, I'm now not sick anymore and I still never got my energy back, you just didn't give your body what it needed to heal properly, right? And we need to have care for ourselves and do this from a nourishing place. We end up down for the count and we're pissed off because our, our lives are so hectic and so busy. Oh, what the fuck? I got sick. This stupid body of mine. Recover. And we want to like get well soon and recover as fast as you can, right? We want to go back to the hustle and grind and the rat race and the working out and the obsessing over the calories and the cold plunges and all the things, right? Ultimately, it's like, no, no. You need to give your body what it needs to recover, which is like a lot of downtime, a lot of nutrients. Way more nutrients than you think when you're sick. Way, way more because your body's recovering from something. So. Yeah, it gets so mad at your body. This, this clunky thing we have, this stupid body. It requires like, so much. How does evolution not produce better for me? God. Yeah, you always talk about the going to pee. I have to pee all the time. This system is stupid. Billions of years of evolution, and this is the best we can do. <laughs> but anyway, I hope that we have uh, sh shown some light, shined some light. What's proper there? Shined. Hope we've shined some light on some things for you. I know, words. <laughs> but ultimately, I wanted to share a lot of these ideas with you because this is what I'm digging into. This is what we are building a course around. So we'll have a course for you soon, you know, soon-ish. We don't know when that will happen. And thank you for watching. We're going to go eat some oysters. We're going to go shuck some oysters. And skirt steak. And skirt steak.
Sounds good. Lots of nutrients. All right, everybody. Happy Wednesday. Have a great night. We love you. I lost my way. You felt so